Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Three thirty. Why don't we get started? It's the lead off with oil prices. I think this is Clinton's revenge, the curtailment of two million barrels, and the Treasury Secretary and their staff have been trying to put in a cap system where Russian oil producers get more than a certain amount per barrel, no matter where the barrel went, even if it went to China or India, and they're trying to use the cargo insurance program and shipping, I guess, permits, or at least get the people that own the tankers organized so that they won't pick up cargoes and move them unless they get certified that not more than, I don't know, let's pick a number, $50 a barrel is going to the the Russian and Russian producer, even though it's being bought by a Chinese refiner, an Indian refiner, this is not popular in the industry. The people who insure cargoes are not happy about it. The people who own ships are not happy about it. Obviously, Russia's not happy about it. And <clears throat> the, I guess the the logic is is to kind of extend sanctions on Russia. God knows those are worthwhile, but it is really not recommended that I've seen by anyone who, you know, in their activities as part of insuring cargoes or arranging tankers or whatnot. So they continue to push with it. Russia probably doesn't have the option that they've used with gas. With gas, they have the huge field, which they can just turn on or off in oil. The fields are much more spread out, many more wells, and the only way they have to really curtail exports is to have more tankage. And um, the people who work on this kind of stuff think they've already got their tank pretty pretty full, so uh, they don't really have the option of curtailing production. But what they can do is use their influence with Saudi and the other OPEC countries to reduce production, which is what's happened. So the Biden administration is trying to keep gasoline prices going down rather than coming up with their eye on the midterm. Inflation is such an issue. And I think this, they're basically going to be defeated getting that done. This will definitely cause oil prices to trade higher. The other thing the Biden administration is, and this all goes, you know, I, I'm not even sure the president knows what stuff is going on. This is Ron Kane and the White House staff. They had oil companies in refiners and producers and whatnot, and they said they wanted cooperation and keeping gas prices down. And <clears throat> the meeting just didn't go very well. I don't know what the White House staff thought they were doing. So the president can, with an executive order, eliminate export of oil. And I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty, we're pretty sure the people I've consulted with, they could also prohibit exports of products, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and whatnot. And they're threatening to do that, you know, 30 days to election. And they're hoping to somehow keep gasoline prices coming down. 
it will be a hardship for Europe because what has happened is uh, Europe has to do without Russian gas. They've taken in a lot of LNG. They've taken high-priced thermal coal. They're rationing electricity. They also have been using a lot of the middle of the barrel to oil other disciplines as a way to make power. It, it would harm Europe. So I don't know. This is kind of the gang that can't shoot straight. They may go try to do it anyway. On the uh, strategic petroleum reserve, they've been producing out of the reserve a million barrels a day. Theoretically, right after election day, I mean, it's so political, right after election day, they say they're going to start adding a million barrels a day back to the reserve. So this is all about trying to retain the House and get a Senate where Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema can block whatever the progressive wing of the Democratic Party wants to do. Who knows whether it'll be successful. In terms of natural gas pricing, well, the interesting things have happened. The near-term price of gas has been lower, you know, rather than $8, $8 has been $6. And it, know, that's what typically happens this time of the year. You're in what is called a shoulder month, which is the air conditioning demand is down and the home heating, residential heating market hasn't taken off yet. Differentials have opened up, uh, especially in West Texas versus Houston. I mean, that West Texas gas was trading at like 50 cents under Henry Hub, and it's been trading like $3 under Henry Hub. So those are huge differentials. I think one of the things it shows is that <clears throat> in natural gas in the United States, it's got an oversupplied market. <laughs> That'll be taken care of by the onset of winter. It is something to watch as we come out of winter and next April and May. There's a huge demand for LNG, but the Freeport facility, which is uh, two beats a day out of the 15 or so of LNG facilities, the LNG demand for U.S. gas, you know, is still down. And hopefully that'll come back. And the new projects that are being worked on will start to phase in next year a little. So that, that will be positive for natural gas pricing in this country. Talked about the differentials. Texas or Waha versus Houston Chip Channel or Henry Hub. In LNG, the TTF, which is the pipe that goes between the Netherlands and the UK, which basically sets gas and, and power prices in Europe, it flows either way, is trading like it's $60. And LNG, uh, black cargo of LNG are like it $30. The big differential is because there's not enough tankers to move it to where the demand is. So <clears throat> that type of situation is liable to persist as you know, there's more demand for LNG cargoes. There's less LNG ships to do it and less lots to land it. So what happens is that <clears throat> since you can't get your hands on a tanker to get the LNG to Europe, you have to accept the lower price. Yes, the here is that it's an oversupplied market. In other words, the limit is the number of LNG ships or the number of blocks at uh, receiving terminals in Europe. In terms of macro, the Federal Reserve, for three months, they ran the balance sheet down $30 billion a month. <clears throat> September is the first month when they went down $90 billion a month. You already see cracks. Last week, the Bank of England went from 
quantitative tightening. In other words, selling securities to quantitative easing in a couple of days because London-based pension funds were having to post collateral. They had kind of complicated leverage positions in the UK government bond market to try to get somewhat higher returns. And those turned on them. So the Bank of England became concerned about the market functioning. So as I say, they went to quantitative tightening to quantitative easing in about 48 hours, a little absurd. And then Credit Suisse, one of the major banks, credit default swaps. In other words, the amount you get charged if you have liability at Credit Suisse and you want to insure it, all of a sudden the, the cost of that insurance went up a lot. So there are cracks in uh, the infrastructure and we're just in the first month of a full drawdown. I drawdown would mean if you just let the bonds held by the Federal Reserve, government bonds and mortgage bonds, about two thirds, one third mature and don't reinvest, that's the drawdown. The drawdown, the Federal Reserve has said on past occasions is around a hundred billion a month. I think they're concerned enough about inflation, about their being slow to recognize with inflation. Remember, they famously said initially it's transitory and they didn't slow down on building the balance sheet or think about increasing that fund rate. They were at least 12, 18 months low on that. Now they're trying to catch up. And so you would think that they would be continue to be pretty strict about keeping the balance sheet runoff and setting a Fed funds rate that is at least equal to the rate of inflation in our economy. The stock market goes up, the stock market comes down, the stock market overall, the average stock is off 30% for this year. It's clearly a time to not assume that you own something and it's somehow going to go up in value. Clearly a time to focus on on balance sheet and cash flow statement where uh, you own shares of a company where a low stock is good because you can, you can buy in the rest of the company at a low price. That's where you want to be. And we've been going through chips. We did NVIDIA and last week AMD and this week we're going to talk about Intel because of news, Michael and Jason are going to circle back and talk a bit about Tesla. And just because we thought that it would be interesting to look at one of the upstart EV companies, we all, we also are going to chat about Rivian a little bit. I'll turn it over to them and then I'll interject with questions. I think next week, because it's newsworthy here in New York, we're going to talk about Micron, which is a chip company, but you've probably seen in the paper, they're going to spend tens of billions of dollars in New York state, I guess they get tax relief and cheap power and whatnot. But <clears throat> I think the place they picked is about 20 miles north of Syracuse. So it's a big win for, uh, for New York state. And because a lot of us live in New York or near New York, we're going to have Micron be the company followed next week. And with that, just my lead in, I spent time last weekend looking at video and ADM, their balance sheet, their cash flow statements and Intel, as you know, from past Wednesday conversations, I continue to say, well, Intel must get to some price and it'll be cheap enough. It'll be a good investment. Having looked at the cash flow characteristics of Intel, I came to the conclusion that it's just not a good investment, even if 
we didn't have the advice from uh, Mike and Jason that they're still behind on Taiwan Semiconductor. You know, they do have this really good guy running them. We have an expression, if a good management meets a bad business, oftentimes the business wins. So I've gone from wondering why I wasn't interested in Intel after looking at the cash flow characteristics of the business where they're, they really have a pretty big cash flow deficit. I've kind of lost interest for the moment. But with that as an introduction, turn it over to Mike and Jason to, uh, to go through Intel and, and do a bit of a catch up on Tesla and Riven as a comparison to Tesla. So over to those guys. Okay. So Jason and I were just talking through the history of Intel and how they fell off the leading edge. So I thought maybe we'll start just talk through that. We kind of, we're going to get to the same conclusion that we always get to on Intel is that we don't like it. We don't think they're in a great spot, but yeah. So I, I, this kind of goes back to Gelsinger leaving in 2009 mm-hmm. and maybe around then could have been when you would say peak Intel. Pro- probably. So if you're looking at development of, of their nodes, he leaves in 2009 and they're still on track until about 2014 where Intel, TSMC, and Samsung were all kind of on par at 14 nanometers. At that point, the fourth major fab is Global Foundries. That's when they kind of fell off from being on the leading edge. The next next step would be 10 nanometers, and that's where Intel really started to struggle. They kind of had this process where they're repurposing their older fabs into, the, into a newer process node, um, whereas Taiwan Semiconductor builds a new fab for the new process and keeps manufacturing the older chips. So Intel's, Intel's trying to repurpose a lot of it, and it worked for a long time. Um, but this is where they really started to struggle with that process. In 2016, both Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung came out with their 10 nanometer processes. It wasn't until 2018 that Intel met that. And one little interesting fact is 2015, 2016 were two of the lowest years in the last over a decade of CapEx spending on the part of Intel. Yeah. So clearly there's something here where the bean counters are running the business and not the technologists. And you can see that in their results and their financials. Yeah. Maybe either they weren't aware they're falling behind or. Well, they, I think those, the, the difference between a fab with the newer EV technologies, even in that case is DUV, those machines get bigger and bigger and you actually end up to about something that's full fat around it. So mm-hmm. Intel's model was to take an existing fab and repurpose and make them all exactly the same. That didn't really fit that model. Right. And the physical size of wafers were changing. Um, so they're getting larger. So you can, you can get more chips yielded from a single wafer with, with the modern processes. So continue with the timeline there. Around the same time Intel was releasing their 10 nanometer process, Taiwan Semiconductor was on their seven nanometer process. So the next node, a little caveat is Intel's 10 nanometer was better than Taiwan Semiconductor's 10 nanometer. So it's kind of in between seven and 10. But at this point, Taiwan Semiconductor is clearly ahead. Then the jump that Intel hasn't made until just this beginning of this year is reaching that seven nanometer process. So in the meantime, from 2018 through through now, Taiwan Semiconductor has released seven nanometer, five nanometer, and then they're beginning production on three nanometers. So they're 
they're multiple generations ahead. The only thing I'd add is that over time, we went from four players that we lost Google Foundries in 2014, they fell off, lost Intel down to two players. And actually, if you look at, at the seven nanometers, when Samsung started to fall behind, Samsung got back on with five nanometer, not too far behind Taiwan Semiconductor, but it seems like three nanometer, they're falling behind as well. Yeah. So Taiwan Semiconductors is starting production kind of now on that node. Right. And I don't know if Samsung has released the schedule yet. And notably, Intel's chips are rebuilt on Taiwan Semiconductors, three nanometer node. Definitely. Yeah. So, so when Pat Gelsinger comes back on board with Intel, he has this plan for, he calls it IDM 2.0. So an IDM is, is, is Intel really. It's, it's a business model where you're designing and manufacturing all the chips under one company. We talk about NVIDIA and AMD a lot. They're fabless. So they design the chips, but then Taiwan, Taiwan Semiconductors, the fab, and they manufacture the chips. So Intel is trying to do, do both. Part of his IDM 2.0 strategy is he stood up Intel Foundry Services, so IFS. So it's, it's essentially Intel's version of Taiwan Semiconductor. You can think of Intel proper as being a customer, if you will, of, of this IFS Foundry service. And we're speculating whether, you know, the, the future plans are they kind of split that business up because now fabulous semiconductor companies have larger, larger market caps than Intel. Yeah. And Intel generates no additional gross margin in comparison. So mm -hmm. you look at, whether you look at right. chip designers or you look at SAVs, Intel's gross margins have fallen from the mid 60% range down to around 50%, which is lower than where Taiwan Semiconductor's margins are. Yeah. And all they do is make chips. Yeah. So, so it, the business is not in a good place. You look at the past decade of CapEx and you kind of realize that they probably severely underinvested over that period. And now they're trying to catch up and it's, that's a hard project to invest in. Mm -hmm. We like Gelsinger, we're rooting for him, but it doesn't seem investable to us yet. Mike and Jason, what about chip design? Where do they stand there? They're, they're trying to get back on track. They struggled for so many years on getting seven nanometers to market. They've, they've redesigned their whole process there. Um, they decided they were going to adopt EUV technology from ASML, and they simplified the process of fabrication in that node. So I think they're kind of a... I don't know if they're abandoning their old strategy, but but it seems like they might be where they're trying to repurpose older older fabs and new processes. Now they're kind of purpose building them. But the, the point is that the manufacturing process is holding back Intel's design. And, Absolutely. And as far as we can tell, Intel is still very good with designing CPUs. Right. Right. And and they have they have really clever engineers working on their packaging technologies. They're yeah. they're on par, you know, with the best there. So not all the CapExes and RD has been wasted, but uh, they've certainly got hit. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see the capabilities of their next generation chips that are Intel designed, but built on the latest Taiwan Semiconductor fabs. Jason's theory is they never get off that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they get hooked on TSMC's, hooked on their manufacturing drug and they never get off and they kind of split the company into a 
design studio, you know, chip designers and, uh, and then IFS is a separate business. Yeah. Maybe even spin it off. It would be exactly what, uh, AMD did. Yep. Yep. What do you think NVIDIA or AMD or Qualcomm or whatnot would hire Intel to make a chip rather than Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung? I mean, is that conceivable in the near term? I, I think that's why they need to eventually spin out that business. I think in the short term, there's enough business and enough demand on the table that they could probably piece together the customers, assuming they could put together a solution that was price competitive with the others. But I, I think long-term, that's why it needs to be a separate business. Similar to AMP spinning off global. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we talk apps, we're talking not just apps in California or Arizona, we're talking that, I mean, Intel has maps in what? Seven or eight different locations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're they're big in the U.S. and Europe, and that's kind of something that a lot of customers like. Otherwise, you're you're going to Asia for manufacturing. Uh -huh. Yeah, part of when you know Gelsinger comes back, one of his first things is announce huge expansion in Arizona, which is under construction currently. Um, and then they've also announced a big complex of fabs um, in Ohio that they're going to build over the next decade. A lot of uh, U.S.-based manufacturing. Because it's news-related, really good rundown on Intel, but because it's news-related, Elon Musk apparently saw or was advised that he was not going to make any progress in the litigation in Delaware, and he was going to get a court judgment that he had to proceed with acquiring Twitter for the $54 price or whatever the price is. So he's trying to do that. Uh, some part of the consideration of five Twitter must be coming from the sale of Tesla shares. And <clears throat> Tesla, at the end of each quarter, the very day the quarter end, announced that how many cars they delivered. And that was a little disappointing, the announcement they made on September 30. And the stock has been a little on the weak side. Michael Jason has done enormous amount of work on Tesla. And I think they come in, I, I think the stock's somewhere in the 240, 250 range, and they're trying to holding out for something under 200. But in the remaining few minutes, why don't we uh, go through how you get to a level where you're comfortable buying Tesla and living through it in terms of, you know, drawdowns and uplifts and whatnot, but just where you get a price that you hold for half a decade or more. Sure. So the, the, the key with Tesla is buying it at an entry price where you're really comfortable. And when we looked at it initially, we said, well, everything except for the automotive business is basically break even. So like the, the, the solar business is, is break even. So we'll just value that at zero. And we broke it down by the unit economics and said their average revenue per car is $47,000. We saw their gross margin potential being 35 plus percent. So we assumed 35%. And we assumed, again, this is very much based on what Elon said. They're not going to increase their OPEX. So steady OPEX of $8 billion a year. 
So running through those calculations, if you assume 2 million cars produced, that gets you to, after the share split, 795 a share of free cash flow, and 20x that is about $160. If you could buy it there, that would be ideal. But looking forward, as, you know, we, we looked at this months ago, you know, 12 months from now, you could say they're probably be doing two and a half million run rate, or actually probably more than that. Let's say it was two and a half million. So you make those same assumption, assumptions, you end up with free cash flow per share at 1057 um, and 20 X that would be $211.46. So we're definitely within striking range of a relatively reasonable valuation. And then you sort of have these options on all the other stuff that Intel, or that Tesla does. So be it solar or be the grid scale batteries, be it robots. Robots. Yeah. See, the Tesla AI day was, was super cool. If you are into that kind of stuff, what Tesla is doing with robots, these are humanoid robots that likely for a price tag that they're predicting of around $20,000 can do a lot of very menial stuff. So you see these super high minimum wages, a lot of jobs could be replaced by these humanoid robots. So if, you know, and what's interesting is they utilize the exact same hardware that Tesla uses in their self-driving cars. So there is some scale economy to what they're doing there. So all that is to say, discounting all that to the value of zero, that's what you're getting free. I, you know, it's hard not to like. Yeah. And the, uh, just to close the 20 times is a 5% free cash yield. And, <clears throat> and they have a very strong balance sheet. I mean, I'm thinking they're looking at the June 30 balance sheet. There's a, there's under 3 billion of debt. There's 22 billion of current liability, 11 billion of accounts payable. I mean, a lot, you know, you're making cards. A lot that goes into it, and current assets are thirty-one billion. So you've got ten billion of, of working capital, and there's eighteen billion of cash on hand. And <clears throat> for the first six months, the cash on hand improved. We'll get to Rivian next Wednesday. Completely different situation. They they are very early stage producing cars. They also started with about eighteen billion of cash. But I mean, rather than adding cash, they actually ran through about three billion of cash year to date. So the problem there is how quickly does it get to be Tesla like Tesla? And you know, if, if you're going to run through three, four billion a year in cash, and you got eighteen on. I mean, sooner or later you get, you're going to run out. So as I said earlier, in response to the very volatile stock market and and very volatile fund market, uh, the appeal of companies with low debt and good free cash flow is <clears throat> higher than ever. I think when we sort all through all this and compare with other companies we've been looking at, Tesla, believe it or not, with its reputation for being very high valued and whatnot, you know, impossible to buy, is beginning to look to us like a value stock where you could buy it for five times five percent free cash flow with a very strong balance sheet. And with that, everyone stay healthy and uh, we'll be back on again on next Monday. Take care, everyone.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if investment is suitable for you.